Het komen nooit niet en we verleiden ons van pijn. Getansen werd in klappen, onkritsen met dit zin. Toch laat de glas aan blazen, onnem de zwijbel rezen. Om geet met meer aten zal het er All right, welcome to Proles of the Minyan. The Talmudic Tankies bringing you another holiday episode today. Uh, we will be discussing Hanukkah or Hanukkah, never Chanukkah. Don't, you know, need to learn how to pronounce your CHs. Um, <clears throat> you got a when you say it as the most important uh, work of Hanukkah media, the Rugrats Hanukkah made clear. Uh, <laughs> It really is. It is the greatest. Still holds up. (laughs) The Passover episodes are really good, too. Yeah, the the Rugrats Passover is also a fucking classic. Um, But yeah, so uh, it's it's just Talia and I on today. Talia is going to be covering more of the the holiday practices and whatnot. I'm going to be covering the, like, weird world of the history behind this holiday uh, and that's pretty much it. I guess we'll just jump right into it. What are you drinking today, Talia? So today I have a Schlafly Boomerang Lemon Lime Mead Spritzer. Wow, what the fuck? <laughs> that was so many... <laughs> there's so many things going on in that drink. I feel so... Out- delicious. <laughs> Uh, I went to a Czech beer festival two weeks ago, and they had this to sample, and I was like, holy shit, I love mead, and I like my fizzy water alcoholic (laughs) drinks, and this is delicious. That's fucking great. Uh, I I feel very boring now, because I'm just drinking my my usual Narragansett shitty lager, but... (laughs) It's okay. I can't. <laughs> Look, I, I am. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I am. Hey. Opening your beer. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's right. so refreshing. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's great. I do like meat. I'll have to try that. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, it's a St. Louis only thing. Oh, I see how it is. I'm sorry. Well, maybe with the help of our lovely patrons, uh, I could come visit and we'll do a live episode. Woof, <laughs> Or I could just bring it to Red Pesach. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm going to do a brief update on that letter that I talked about. In oh, yeah. After Dark. I got nothing. Oh. <laughs> um, I emailed this other museum a month ago, and I have not heard back. So I'm thinking it doesn't exist. Uh and the one so, source is the curator. I don't think it exists. God damn it. What the fuck? That's so fucked up. That's so yeah. fucked up. Uh, this one thing that is like such oh fucking A. I think what needs to happen is someone needs to go to Moscow, go to this museum, go to the archives and demand to see this letter. Yeah. If, if they can read Russian. Yeah, so <laughs> listeners, dear listeners, any of you who have like the academic credentials and the ability to read Russian, hop on it. 
<laughs> we need this. We need the proof. <laughs> and you can email us at Pearl's Minion and I can tell you which museum and where to go and the address and everything because they're just ignoring me at this point. Oh, God damn it. Motherfuckers. We, we need the receipts. Where are the fucking receipts? <laughs> what <the> letter? <laughs> How hard would it be to digitize that letter? Not that hard. Yeah. Just, I feel like some Jewish group would want to digitize that letter or you, victims yeah, of right. communism would want right. to digitize that. You would think <laughs> if such a thing existed that it would be like loudly displayed everywhere. Look, look, Stalin tried to hide Lenin's Jewishness yeah. when his sister thought it would be a cool way to unite Jews and non-Jews. Which, yeah. like, I don't know, good good on you, Lenin's sister. That's cool that you wanted to do that. Uh, <laughs> If that's real. <clears throat> Who knows? Who's to say? Yeah. One of my students asked me the other day if I could go back in time and like meet any historical figure, who would it be? And it's absolutely Stalin. And Aww. like I but like I, you know, I, I teach at a public school, so I can't just be like completely, you know, full red flag flying all the time. <laughs> But I was just like, look, I just want to meet him and just ask him questions about what's real and what's not, because there's so many contradictory stories. And I just want to fucking know. (laughs) Just uh, Joey, tell me how you feel. (laughs) 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 Yeah. All right. So enough enough about the frustrating world of, you know, trot fuckery, fake letters. Um, Talia, what what is. Hanukkah. Well, the simple explanation is it's a festival of lights. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but when I taught Sunday school for sixth graders, it was mainly boys. Uh, sixth grade boys are insane. Just oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> True. Uh, but I got a way for them to like get really excited about Hanukkah because Hanukkah originally celebrated Judith. Mm. And Judith is my lady. So when I converted, my rabbi picked a holiday for me to go to the mikvah. And he picked Hanukkah because he thought I would look into it and would really enjoy what it was really about. And he was correct because uh, all in my undergrad um, time, I studied all these pictures, uh, these paintings of women beheading men. And one of those (laughs) ladies was Judith. Hell yes. Uh, So... Hanukkah was originally celebrating Judith. Who was Judith? Um, She was a widow uh, during ancient times um, who the Assyrians had taken over the Israelites' uh, camp, and she was like, fuck this, I'm going to stop this. And so she... There were rumors that she was really pretty and all that. And she went and went to the Assyrian general with her handmaiden, got him super drunk off of wine and fed him a lot of cheese. Hell yeah. And the way to any man's heart. (laughs) And woman's. True. Uh, And uh, when he passed out, she pulled out a blade 
and slashed his head off. And away with his head in a basket with her and her handmaiden and like fucking save the Israelites. Hell yeah. Hell so that goes yeah. along with the theme of they almost killed us. We survived. <laughs> yep. Um, um, so that's what Hanukkah originally celebrated was Judah saving everyone. And uh, they used to do a spiel like a like a Purim spiel, like mm. where you read Esther. They used to read Judith and her story out loud and would act it out. And there's that's also they also ate like a lot of cheese based things like we do. Um, is it Shavuot? Yeah, I think it's Shavuot, um, which celebrates Ruth. It is Shavuot. Yeah. Uh, you do lots of lots of cheesy things. Yeah. Uh, so. For Ashkenazim anyway. I'm not sure. Yes. I'm not sure about other Nusach. Um, so yeah, I just want to say like, I know Hanukkah from a reform Ashkenazic background, but I did learn that in Sephardi realms, like they would have like a celebration of women during Hmm. Hanukkah and Judith included in that. Um, and I learned that because this Disney princess that just came out is <laughs> is uh, is a Sephardi Jew, and they had a Hanukkah episode, and they didn't even talk about Whoa. Judith. What? Yeah. I didn't even know that was a thing. That's yeah. Awesome. And they didn't even speak Ladino or anything, but spoke Yiddish. No. Oh. So it's uh. like you done fucked up. Oh jeez. But now I know that uh, the Sephardi Jews always celebrate Judith. That's cool. Hanukkah. And but, that that makes sense because like. A, a lot of you know a lot of goyim don't know this but hanukkah is not otherwise a religious festival right like there's the, the books of the maccabees are not even in the tanakh judith isn't in there either but judith judith's in the tanakh isn't she not in the torah but i don't think she's in there really i think she got cut out what the fuck i know oh she- shit i never knew that so she, I know for sure she was in the Catholic Bible yeah. and she cut out. And I think this is just more male fuckery yeah, <laughs> trying right. to keep her out of a, out of a, like just excluding women. Yeah, you know, that's crazy. Up. I, I, so I thought when I had first heard, um, and you had, you'd been the one to tell me that like, Hanukkah originally had this strong Judith story attached to it. I had kind of, I guess, gotten mixed up in my brain that Judith was in the the Hebrew Bible. And so it was like partially an attempt to bring in some um, some like religious clout to the holiday because like the Maccabees aren't religious at fucking all. But that's that's even more interesting that it's also similar it has a similar kind of status as the maccabees as like oh no this isn't like a religious story it's just like a heroic folk story basically yeah um that's so cool that's so interesting so like i guess that means originally and i mean up until 
probably very recently, I would imagine Mm -hmm. the focus of Hanukkah being not exclusively on the Maccabees, but just on like heroic resistance, which is fucking cool as hell. That's yeah. oh man, that makes it so much more awesome, even that I it's know. not like a religious. <laughs> yeah, like because I kind of assumed it was just sort of a like, oh, well, we got to do some religiony thing to justify it. But no, it's just like, hey, while we're celebrating this, like, you know, this other badass thing, why don't we just talk about this cool badass thing, too? <laughs> yeah, and it, it really shows how Jews are fighters and yeah. survivors and doesn't put us in that the passive role, like a right. lot of like what we deal with a lot right now. in like the Goy savior movies and stuff. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's like, like Schindler's List is a good example of a Goy savior movie. Which one? <laughs> uh, Schindler's List. Oh yeah. Yeah. Of course. Uh, if you don't know what a Goy savior is, uh, <laughs> But yeah, like it just shows like we've always resisted. That's why we're still here. Um, And like with Judith, I'm going to just go into my art historic background a little bit. So she was a very, very popular figure during the Renaissance to portray. But in almost all the portrayals of her in the Renaissance done by male artists, she's a very passive, she's in a very passive role, like mm. not really being active, like slicing his head off or um, trying to like uh, standing back, trying not to get blood on her while slicing his head off um, or already holding his head. But there's this one woman artist that I, I like this is why I told uh, my sixth grader boys like this is you need to look up Judith beheading Halifernes and look at the art and they got really into it. Uh, so Artemisia Janileski is an artist, a woman artist who portrayed Judith beheading Halifernes, but instead of being like really passive and coy, she's like really. Like, she's a thick woman, like, really, it looks like she's really struggling trying to get that blade through his throat. It's such a good uh, painting. I fucking love is. that painting. And, like, there's blood splattered all over her, and she's, like, really active. And, yeah. like, her mate, her handmaiden is, like, right behind her and, like, pushing him down and helping her. So both women are like super active in what they're doing. And what's really cool about it is there's a theory that Artemisia Janileski for Holofernes face is the face of her rapist. Ooh. Oh, shit. there's, There's that whole thing, too. So... Judith has been around a long time and they've tried to erase her, but she's like roaring back and I fucking love it. And I wish we could celebrate her more by like having like, I don't know, blown up Judith, like beheading Halifernes. (laughs) I don't know. Instead of Santa Claus, it's Judith. (laughs) There's just like a blood fountain or something. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, man. Fucking that's so good. That, yeah, that painting is that that specific rendition is so visceral. I fucking love it. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, Judith fucking rules. Um and it's it's 
super sad that this story that was for so long associated with the with the holiday of Hanukkah has like I was I don't remember ever having uh, somebody read Judith at my shoal when I was a kid, you know, you're supposed to sit on the Shabbat of Hanukkah. Yeah. Like, I don't remember. I don't remember that at all. Like it could have happened and I just like, wasn't paying attention to it. But like, I don't recall that being a talked up portion of it. You know, the story that Mm -hmm. I always heard was exclusively the story of Judah, the Maccabee, you know? Um, and so I guess like, getting getting into into that a little bit do you want to tell just kind of the the kind of popular conception of hanukkah like we've already done a little bit of the like digging in beneath the Mm -hmm. surface um but what what would what would be like the your average person's understanding of what hanukkah is all about i could do the really simple version was uh there was enough oil to last eight nights uh was were they like ransacking the temple? They were. It was a dedication of the hot. temple after yeah. they kicked out the 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 uh, Greeks. Yeah. So that's the really simple version of it, and that you're supposed to get presents every like eight nights. <laughs> uh, you eat latkes because you're supposed to eat a lot of uh, oily, f- greasy food mm-hmm. to uh, represent the oil. Um, right. If you watch a Hanukkah Rugrats episode you would that's like yeah the version that most people know right and they know and that like Judah Judah the Maccabee was this heroic leader who led this little band of of Jewish rebels and kicked out the Greeks yay yeah uh, <laughs> see for the past 10 years since I've been a Jew I have pushed all the Maccabee stuff out of my brain and focused only on Judah <laughs> so I'm like I I don't actually know that much about the Maccabees anymore okay. because so, I'm like I love Judith I want to <laughs> do stuff for her <laughs> All right. Well, so in that case, I guess um, just to like briefly run down the kind of, you know, Rugrats special version, which is like the the received version for most, you know, at least, uh, you know, I, I, I too come from a reform Ashkenazi background. So with all the, the caveats of that included, but I feel like it's pretty common that what you hear about is, oh, the the Greeks were ruling Israel and this guy Judah with his dad and his brothers started this this kind of revolt um, and they, you know, against all odds succeeded. And when they rededicated the temple, which had been like uh, the the Greek king had put up a statue of Zeus in the temple. Um, and when they rededicated the temple, they cleaned out all the idol worship stuff and they had to light the menorah. And um, most folks are familiar with the the Hanukkiah, which is the Hanukkah specific menorah that has uh, nine branches. Um, mm-hmm. The temple menorah had seven. Uh, that's the one that we actually talked about in our first episode as far as symbolism yeah. goes. Right. Uh, and it was, yeah, this seven branched oil lamp, like uh, oil lit lantern. And yeah, like you said, the, the miracle of Hanukkah is. Uh, that the they only had enough oil for one night, but then miraculously the oil stayed lit for eight crazy nights, and that's that's, oh, that's what we celebrate with oily food and yeah. I just thought of Adam Sandler. <laughs> that was that was the reference. Um, 
it's it's lodged in my brain forever for better oh, or worse God. Uh, fuck you adam sandler uh, <laughs> i also have a theory that hanukkah is only as popular as it is now because of the rise of christmas oh absolutely that's, <laughs> that's not that's not like a theory that's just that's proven fact okay. like like prior prior to um the Jewish emancipation and Jews coming to America, Jews like becoming white folks in America, we didn't even give presents on Hanukkah. Like that that wasn't a thing, you know, like that was not part of the holiday until it became associated with Christmas shit. Um, This is like one of my biggest pet peeves about Hanukkah is that, you know, my students and Goyish friends and people, whatever they think of it, like, Oh, it's the Jewish Christmas. And it's fucking it's, is it? No, it's like the Jewish fucking like Veterans Day. It's fucking nothing. It's not yeah. that important. It it has no basis in like religion, really. It's not it's not one of the major or minor holidays, even. It's like a it's mm-hmm. like a third tier festival, you know. But um, she deserves it. Yes, definitely. <laughs> She's super cool. <laughs> but just like I don't know. I I tend I was actually asked recently by a colleague like, hey, how should we going forward try to de-Christianize our uh, our like winter holiday stuff? And I was like, well, you can't because Mm -hmm. most cultures don't have a winter holiday as its most important holiday or even any holiday at all. Like one of my Muslim students was asked what he's doing for like what his holiday is. And he was like, uh. We, we don't have one because like winter didn't matter in the fucking Arabian desert. You moron, you know, like <laughs> you, you only have these seasonal holidays that stem from a culture in a, you know, in a part of the world that had these seasons, like both Christmas and Hanukkah trace back a lot of their practices to Roman holidays. And, and like, but even with that, you know, it's not, it's not a major fucking holiday. No one wishes me happy holidays in September or October for the high holy days, you know, or in March or April for Pesach when I would actually Mm -hmm. want to be wished happy holidays. And so it's like, yeah, it, uh, I don't want to go too far down the Yaakov hates happy holidays rant, but like it really fucking bugs me because it's like, motherfucker, I know you're just trying to say Merry Christmas. Like you don't exactly. fucking care about my actual holidays. The only one you know about is Hanukkah and Hanukkah doesn't fucking matter. It's nah. <laughs> I, I want us to start giving gifts on Purim again, not Hanukkah. Fuck Hanukkah. Uh, yeah. Purim's so much better. It's such a better I holiday. That. Uh, we'll talk about that in our Purim episode. Yeah, look forward to our Purim episode when we go into what is like effectively Jewish Mardi Gras with another like they tried to kill us but we won story. That's yeah. that's gonna be fun. Um, <laughs> but anyway, back to Hanukkah though. Um, I completely lost my train of thought. <laughs> um, <laughs> Well, I guess just to just to say that, like, I want to we'll get into this in more detail later. But that simple story of like the the Maccabees revolting against the Greeks and blah, blah, blah. It's like 98 percent bullshit. Like the, yeah, the story that a lot for little kids. Yeah, 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 yeah. A lot of like a lot of the story that we have received is is nonsense or it's like the the parts that are true are 
overblown in very silly ways that we'll get to in a bit. But just just for like, you know, the for the the listener who doesn't know what's up, I think it'd be nice to kind of go through just like, what do you do? on on Hanukkah like we've talked about the gift giving um Mm -hmm. we talked a little bit about the menorah like what what else is is Hanukkah Hanukkah living now that we're in we're on what the second second day of Hanukkah third night we'll be on the third night yeah third Uh, night starts tonight you get get gold coins oh right yes I forget that people don't know I had to I had to explain dreidel to some of my students and I was like yeah no this is uh gambling for kids (laughs) Gambling with candy, candy gambling, gambling, if you will. Uh, it's real great. Yeah, you know. Uh, <laughs> no, dreidel is awesome. I I fucking love playing dreidel. Um, you know, I got to show off my advanced challenge mode where you uh, you spin the dreidel upside down and you get it spinning on oh. on the spinner on top. I felt very proud of myself. Wow. You know, my my twelve year old students were very impressed. Impressed. <laughs> but yeah. Dreidel, oily ass foods um, for the the oil. Uh, one that I so I I make a mean laka. I have not tried to make sufganiyot yet, which is is. I've only attempted a latka. <laughs> uh, Lakas are great. Sufganiyot, like well made sufganiyot, are fucking incredible. Um, I for, that. You've never had it? Oh my god! It's it's a fried jelly donut. Oh. It's fucking delightful. <laughs> it's, oh. ooh, it's so good. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but yeah. Um, and then I don't know, my family just like you get together, you have some have some drinks, share a little story with the kids. It's again the kind of like very basic version of the story. Um <laughs> and Light the candles. You light. I actually, we got a question in the Discord about this uh, the other night. Just like how how one lights the candles, and this is like maybe a bit too nuts and bolts, but because people ask, so you have the shamash, which is the the candle with which you light the other candles. That's usually in the center. I like that it's called the helper candle. Yeah, it's the helper. Um, <laughs> really like that. Yeah, it's sweet. <laughs> Uh, and you you line up the candles, you know, however many there are, whatever night you're on, uh, from right to left, but then you light them from left to right. People often get that mixed up. I have to check every year, to be honest. I have to like remind myself, like, okay, which which direction is the placing and which is the lighting? But that's it for those curious. Um, Why is that? I don't know. I'm sure there's a okay. reason. I have no fucking <laughs> okay. clue. I have no fucking clue. Um, yeah. You know, you read right to left. Yeah, I don't know why it's it's lighting it from left to right. And I don't even know if if every Nusach, you know, does that. I, that might just be an Ashki thing. Um, but but yeah. Uh, all right. So to to figure out, you know, what what the basis of all this is, there's a couple things we need to do. First, we I, I want to explore the uh, the Maccabean revolt um, and the actual history behind it. And then, and this will become more clear as we go through, like why this event became celebrated in this festival in the way that it has. Um, Because as, you know, nice and neat as the, you know, Rugrats story is, it it really, really, really fucking is not. Um, So 
here we go. <laughs> this, is gonna be, this. this is going to be another <laughs> one of like Yakov shuffling notes, papers flying and going <laughs> all the time. <laughs> um, and me and my brain will just be expanding. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is some real. So actually that, that you know, uh, one of my favorite memes that I, I posted on, on Twitter the other day that some folks might have seen uh, is a galaxy brain meme about Hanukkah. And it's like little itty bitty brain like, oh, Hanukkah is about how great it is to have a Jewish state, a.k.a. Israel. And then like the slightly larger brain is uh, the Maccabees were basically the Jewish Taliban and the, you know, lights starting to shine out from the brain is um the Maccabean revolt is uh, indi radical indigenous response to imperial oppression. And then the like super duper fucking galaxy brain is there is no greater parallel to the Hasmonean revolt than the Intifada. And <laughs> <laughs> and as as like tongue in cheek as that meme is like that is actually fucking true. Every step I of that wait. argument is completely, completely true. Um, <laughs> it's I it's, cannot wait to learn this. OK, so. <laughs> To do this, we have to go back to Alexander the Great, because uh, <laughs> this is where it all begins. I'm ready. <laughs> all right. So Alexander the Great, uh, as as some folks might know, you know, Macedonian dude, uh, kind of conquered a lot of stuff, then immediately died, and his generals carved up his his empire, uh, and you know fought over who was the real successor, did things like steal his bones and drag them around from place to place to try to prove legitimacy. And eventually what winds up happening is in the land of Judea, formerly the Persian satrap of Yehud, you have the Ptolemies in Egypt and the Seleucids in uh, what is their home base is, is kind of Syria, Iraq, Iran, uh, duking it out for control of Judea. Now, why do they care about Judea? Uh, they don't really. <laughs> mm -hmm. they, they care about the Phoenician coastline cities and um, the, the kind of trade connections there. But really, they do care about Judea insofar as it is the border zone. So this is like, oh, I want to have a secure border area for my imperial rival that I'm jockeying with because of the successor kingdoms to Alexander, uh, the Seleucids and the Ptolemies were the strongest and mm -hmm. they were the ones who, I mean, other pretenders harbored dreams of becoming the next Alexander, but like those were the two powers that really stood a shot of reunifying uh, the Alexandrian Empire and making it a thing again. Neither of them did that, but they were the ones trying to. And so their border zone was hotly contested. And so they wound up kind of giving this little backwater province way more attention than it frankly deserved. Um, there were areas right around it that were important. Gaza was the uh, end, like the city of Gaza was the end point of the uh, the kind of desert trade routes um, and would eventually grow into like the Silk Road. So like controlling Gaza was really important. Controlling the Phoenician trading cities on on the coast of the Mediterranean were really important. But the Judean hills were only important insofar as they were part of this borderland. And so you have the Seleucids and the Ptolemies jockeying for control of this area. You know, every every once in a while, the Ptolemies will push north and grab it and they'll conquer up to Damascus 
in Syria, uh, and then the Seleucids will push them back down, and they'll kind of go back and forth. Okay. So that's that's the starting point, and okay. this is this is important because like the idea that there was this thing called you know Israel or Judah or whatever that hadn't existed for a long, long, long fucking time, mm -hmm. like. Judea as a province had been fully incorporated into the Persian Empire for, I mean, hundreds of years at this point. Mm -hmm. um, and prior to that had been part of the, the Babylonian Empire. Um, so like the, the Hanukkah story is often presented as, oh, the Greeks came in and the Jews kicked them out. And really neither of those things are true um, mm -hmm. because like, yes, there were Greeks that came in, but they came in not to an independent Judea. They came into the former Persian satrapy, which is uh, like a, a province or a governorship. Um, and the the like big Jewish families in the I mean, Judean, we shouldn't even be saying Jewish at this point. Judean families uh, in charge were the same families that had been in positions of power under the Persians. And so like the real the real story of Hanukkah is far more tied to this like petty dynastic struggle between different branches of the Judean aristocracy than it has anything to do with like the simple narrative of the Greeks coming in and yada yada. Um, so with that as the, the basic backdrop, let's get into some specifics here. So okay. in 301 BCE, uh, Ptolemy definitively gets control of Judea. And for the next, for like a century, for a century, uh, the Ptolemies have control in Judea. Um, and they do things like uh, build up a lot of the administration and the, the I mean, if they build up their productive forces of the country, they introduce new farming techniques. They uh, have a lot of the the sources I was reading were like describing it as a form of state capitalism, which I found really silly. But <laughs> but oh, like there, yeah. there is a sort of useful parallel in that the like everywhere the Ptolemies conquered um, was kind of carved up into administrative zones and the village was the smallest unit and every village met with a, an imperial tax collector and like worked out what was going to happen. And so there, there were these like very sort of centralized and standardized forms of taxation and land management and production and whatever. Um, and this was both, you know, it, it, it did, I mean, I don't like calling it state capitalism because that ties into all kinds of dumb anti-communist rhetoric. But the idea is yeah. that, like, yes, it did build up the productive forces of of the region. Uh, what that, of course, did was it lent great wealth through uh, agricultural production to the local Judean elites and oppressed the workers. Uh, and so you have a distinct kind of class divide within Judea. And this is where you get into the kind of mistaken 
reduction of uh, oh Hanukkah and the Hasmonean revolt and the Maccabees. It was about the Hellenizers versus the uh, the Ju- the like true Judeans. And this is where the stupid mm-hmm. like the Maccabees were the Taliban argument comes in, which is fucking mm-hmm. horseshit. Um, but the idea is oh this was you know, a group of people who were like religious extremists fighting back against this kind of progressive, secularized worldview. And there was something to like there there was this thing called Hellenization where uh, the beliefs of the broadly Greek world, you know, focused mostly on like uh, Athens uh, more than anything else, but like, yeah, Attic Greek and philosophy and going to the gymnasium to, you know, both be educated and participate in sports and whatnot. That was a thing for the elite. And this mm-hmm. is something that's missing from that. The the second uh, box on the big brain meme where it's like, oh, they were the <sighs> Taliban. It's like, no, it it was much more about class. Like mm-hmm. there was a distinct class struggle at work here. Um, you had elites who, because they wanted to rise up in the in the ranks in the imperial system, had accepted uh, this this Hellenization. And then you had the peasantry that really like didn't have any possible access to that. And so really didn't, you know, uh, pick up on a lot of the Hellenizing things, with the exception of, to some extent, the Greek language. Um, mm-hmm. And this is true, especially in the Jewish diaspora that already existed. There was a strong Jewish population in Egypt um, from before Alexander's time, from Persian times. Um, and they quickly started adopting Greek. Uh, but in like the Judean hinterland, people spoke mostly Aramaic and they just kind of followed, you know, Mosaic law and did their thing. And let's it's see. It's Mosaic law. What's the, Mosaic the law, law of Moses. That's what I thought. <laughs> All right. So a couple things on this. So I'm like a lot of this, I'm going to go into more detail at some point whenever I actually get my shit together and go on Adwinker Amundi because it ties into a lot of that. But just mm-hmm. just quickly, like this whole concept of Hellenism and Hellenization comes from this this guy, Gustav Droysen's, uh conception of ancient history. And it's a very sort of like rudimentary Hegelian concept where he sees like Greece as thesis, the Orient as antithesis and Hellenism as synthesis. And the final, the final synthesis being wait for it, the final synthesis being Christianity. And so, yeah, yeah. So like we need to be really fucking cautious as we're talking about this whole concept of, of Hellenism and Hellenization. Um, Because, yeah, so like that's the background of the term. There is a like a version of the word that pops up in I think second Maccabees where it's like there's there's Helen like Hellenization and Judaization or something. I forget what the actual like Greek words are. Also, I don't I don't speak Greek. Um, but anyway, the it it wasn't really that real. The the Hellenistic kings, the successor kingdoms of the Seleucids and the Ptolemies were really, really strict about keeping up cultural barriers between Greeks and the the native populations of wherever they conquered. They would import in uh, Greek 
and by this point, Macedonians were considered Greeks, but whatever, they would they would import these Greco-Macedonian administrators, tax collectors, soldiers, and whatever. And it was only through um like mercenary ties that Jews started to become slowly like blending into this group because uh a lot of the Jewish diaspora at this point was either as mercenaries or slaves. Um mm-hmm. at this point in history the the judean people weren't the kind of merchant type they weren't like shoved into that role they were largely an agricultural people um and so like when ptolemy conquered judea the numbers are exaggerated but it says that he like deported thirty thousand people um as either mercenaries or slaves and there was a large mercenary population in ptolemaic egypt uh, and also there was one kind of over one important one over the Jordan River in in what is now Jordan um, that started to mix with these Greco-Macedonian uh, you know, administrators and whatnot culturally, still not really intermarrying. Like there were really strict mm-hmm. rules about that from the Greek side of things as well as mm-hmm. from the Jewish. Um, so this I this kind of like silly idea of, oh, it was the worldly Jews versus the backwards Jews. Like, no, it was Jews who adopted Greek to get ahead um, Mm -hmm. that we're really talking about here. So I have have a quote from the Cambridge History of Judaism, volume two, that talks about this a bit. I'm so jealous that you have that. I I can send it to you. I I have the PDFs. Um, Uh, (laughs) I want physical copies. Oh, yeah, I don't have the physical (laughs) copies. Shit. I I wish that'd be dope. Um, But yeah, so at this point, it's talking about um, the, the Jewish diaspora, but this is helpful in kind of seeing the the limits at which Hellenism operated. So, quote, the Jewish diaspora did not assimilate unconditionally to its Hellenistic environment. Jews went through the obligatory training of the gymnasium. They learned Homer and classical poetry and pursued further studies in rhetoric and philosophy. They went to the theater and the games. They had social contacts with non-Jews and even entered upon a successful career in the Ptolemaic civil service. But they did not accept Greek polytheistic religion. They kept the Sabbath, avoided unclean foods, and attended worship in the synagogue, where more and more a polished didactic address in the style of a diatribe took its place alongside prayer and hymn and gave to the educated Jew the consciousness that he represented the true philosophy. So, like, two interesting things. A, the idea of prayer in the synagogue is a Jewish diaspora invention. Um, it largely comes from this Alexandrian Egyptian mm-hmm. community uh, because they didn't they couldn't sacrifice. I mean, there was one like weird guy who tried to start this like side temple in Egypt. It never really took off. Um, but for the mm-hmm. for the upper class Jewish community abroad, uh, this this was how you operated. Like like it says, you know, you you learned the language, you had all the kind of like trappings but you still were a Jew and you were innovating and, and kind of bringing in elements of Hellenistic form, like a, a kind of rhetorical speech, a sermon, you know, the, mm-hmm. the drosh, but you didn't like, it, it wasn't like this was a break with Judaism. Um, and it's also, th- this is like, this is the absolute limit. There were very, very few, as far as we know from the record, Jews who like just abandoned Judaism and were like, yeah, I'm just going to like worship Helios or whatever now. Yeah. Um, and so like this is in the diaspora. 
it's even less so in Judea. There was less of this, uh, this like rapid and like intense, you know, acculturation process. Uh, especially once the Seleucids took over. So the Seleucids take over in 199 um, and they have, they're just kind of not as good at centralizing as the Ptolemies. Um, The Ptolemies, you know. You always need that central committee. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the, the thing is like Egypt for, from time immemorial had had like a really, really long tradition of a centralized administration. um, Whereas, the areas that the Ptolemies controlled didn't have that kind of historical sense of unity or that that like the kind of institutional inertia wasn't there. And so it was much more piecemeal. Um, And so this allowed for two things. It allowed for the the Jewish upper class to have a more active role as tax farmers, as, you know, the administrators, as the kind of courtiers of the of the area of Judea. And it also allowed the common people to kind of maintain their cultural practices to a much greater degree um, than under Ptolemaic uh, control. But yeah, like last, last thing about Hellenism as a concept or Hellenization, what we think of it is actually more what happened during Roman times. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's this kind of conflation and like, I mean, like I said, the theory comes from this guy who sees the apogee of Hellenization in Christianity, which obviously didn't become a thing until Roman times. So like yeah. the conflation goes way back to the beginning of this term, but the, the process by which the average imperial subject became more and more homogenous, uh, it, it did happen under Roman times. It mm-hmm. did not happen under the Ptolemaic or Seleucid empires in Hellenistic times. Um, and so like, you know, we we tend to in, you know, the West, you know, holding Rome up on this pedestal, we kind of see everything as a reflection of it, every empire as a reflection of Rome. Um, but it's worth keeping in mind that like that level of kind of cultural uh, indoctrination didn't exist previously. Um, mm-hmm. That was one thing that made the Roman Empire kind of unique was the level of Romanization of its subjects. Um, so, Yeah. That was not what was happening in in Judea. It was not like the the majority of people were going around, you know, Greekifying to the extreme. And then there was this weird little band of religious extremists like, ah, no, burn all the temples. It it was much more that the upper classes were ingratiating themselves into their imperial overlords through the hmm. use through the use of greek as as a language hmm. and yeah and <laughs> but the thing Sounds is familiar I know, right it's it's <laughs> it's almost like there's certain mechanics to imperialism that uh can be universally studied uh <laughs> but but here's the thing the maccabees did that too there, there were Maccabean supporters that included that that military colony that I mentioned off in the Jordan. They were a support base for the Maccabean revolt. So like there there are named cavalry officers that fought in the Maccabean uh, revolt, the Hasmonean revolt, whose names were Dositheus and Sosipater. Greek fucking names. You know, like this was not it wasn't a one sided culture war, which is what it's, you know, once you get past the like baby version, that's the next version you hear of the story is, oh, it was a culture war, but Greek and Jew. 
but that's not really true. Um, it that's a very very simple version of things, because yeah, like the Judah himself did not have a Greek name, but several of the like next wave, the the Hasmonean dynasty, a lot of them had Greek names. Um, mm-hmm. Or they had both Jew, both Hebrew and Greek names, you know, and so like it it wasn't this yeah it wasn't this basic ass culture war. Um, what really it comes down to is a familial conflict within the high priestly family. Um, so at the time, the highest ranking person in Judea was the high priest, um, and they were. Uh, well, maybe not highest ranking. I it's hard to say. I don't haven't quite figured out who, like how the structure of the Persian province worked. Because there was there was a satrap who was like a governor, and then there was the high priest. And like I think sometimes it might have been the same person, but sometimes it wasn't. And there was a competition between people in the Judean upper class to see who could you know, leverage themselves into these positions of power. So you have this family called the Tobiads because they're, you know, named after this guy, Tobias. And they had been uh, a Persian satrap family, like in the time of the Persian empire, they were the Jews who were the kind of like local designated rulers. Um, And they also had connections to the high priesthood. And there was a a split in this family. And this is where I'm going to try to figure this fucking shit out um <laughs> include family trees if need be yeah in the show notes honestly <laughs> uh, it you're gonna you might see my insane notes um so yeah so you have this former satrap family which then for the hundred years under the ptolemies had become you know very kind of ingratiated with the ptolemaic empire they had lots of connections with the, the Jewish diaspora, which was largely in Ptolemaic controlled areas, Alexandria in Egypt, Cyrenaica in what is now Libya. Um, so there were lots of connections among the upper classes between Ptolemaic Egypt and, and Judea. And then you have this guy, Onias II, uh, who is trying to be high or I think I forget if he is or was trying to be high high priest. He's the brother-in-law of Tobias of the Tobiad family. And Onias II supports the Seleucids. And this is where things start breaking down. What you have is you have this factional infighting where each side of this aristocratic family is trying to work with one of the uh, imperial powers of the day. So you have like generation after generation. I'm not going to go into all the crazy detail because it gets way too fucking confusing. You have generation after generation of, you know, somebody trying to leverage their position with Seleucus or whatever Seleucid uh, emperor there was. And then somebody else trying to leverage their position with Ptolemy to become high priest or to get this position or that position. And that's what eventually leads us to the the Maccabean revolt. It's a fucking it's this it's fucking compradors infighting. <laughs> that's that's the background of all this. Um, okay. okay, so into this uh this kind of like factional infighting where somebody asking Ptolemy, somebody asking the Seleucids, Rome comes into the picture. <laughs> um, Boo. yeah well it's it's 
it's complicated. So, uh, yeah. So the Seleucid Empire, which now controls Judea, is uh, ruled by this guy Antiochus the Third, uh, and he is the one that the Tobiad family, now headed by this guy Simon, is supporting. Um, after he wins and kind of takes back Judea from the Ptolemies, uh, a lot of the Ptolemaic supporters leave and go to Alexandria. Um, he recognized this this kind of this uh, legal body called the Gerousia, which is kind of the precursor to the the Sanhedrin as far as like a council of. I mean, they weren't rabbis at the time, but like that's the basic gist of it. Mm-hmm. And he recognized the laws of Moses uh, for for Judeans, including those in diaspora. There was this kind of concept with various peoples of like, oh, you can follow the law of your fathers. And it was like true for the Athenians and the Jews and a few other peoples in the empire. Uh, and then a decade later, he Antiochus III fought against Rome and Rome won and took over Anatolia, modern Turkey. And with it, all of the silver mines. And because of that, this starts this process where the Seleucid emperors and their governors start raiding sanctuaries. Uh, And this eventually winds up with the the attempted raid of the temple treasury in Jerusalem, which obviously does not go over very well. Um, Mm -hmm. And into this you know, chaos, Ptolemy V starts putting in like a soft power support, like behind the scenes support for independence movements to try to break off chunks of the Seleucid Empire. Mm-hmm. So Ptolemy's going, oh, the Seleucids are weak. They need to be stealing money from these holy shrines. That's going to piss people off. So, yeah, so the Ptolemies are now kind of like, hey, if you break away from the Seleucids, we we might help you. And like, there's there's still a lot of Jews in Ptolemaic Egypt. There's a lot of connections there. Uh, and you get, uh, let's see, after Simon comes high priest Onias III, and he is again from that Tobiad family. Uh, and then you have this fucking upstart dude, also helpfully named Simon, because, you know, why not just make it fucking confusing? Who is just like, he's a Levite, but he's not a Kohen. He's not an actual priest. He's like a functionary in the temple. But he weasels his way into the good graces of the, of uh, Antiochus III. And is like, hey, dude, you should make me high priest. And so now you have, not only are some people supporting the Ptolemies, you have rival groups within the temple trying to get the support of the Seleucids. And it all just blows up. It just goes fucking crazy. Uh, there's Sounds like, like it. yeah, there's there's <laughs> rounds of backstabbing that I'm not going to get into. Um, but the long and the short of it is this guy, Simon, winds up uh, succeeding. And then his brother, Menelaus, becomes high priest. So a dude named Menelaus, again, the kind of like Hellenization in terms of naming and language of the upper class like a Homeric name is the high priest and he is involved in uh, this kind of rapid reform program. It's, it's confusing who really started it. uh, But some of the high priestly groups were like, Hey, we want to really be part of the empire. You should uh, restructure Jerusalem as a Greek polis and give us the constitution of a Greek polis. And there's even 
a movement to get Jerusalem renamed Antiochia after the emperor to like give mm-hmm. it this kind of fancy status. And this is what sparks off the uh, the Hasmonean revolt. Um, it was one thing to have the upper class like learning Greek and taking on Greek names and doing business with the Greek emperors and whatnot. But up until this point, Jerusalem had been the capital city of the Judean ethnos, the Judean people. And like by Greek law, that was a kind of different category than a city constitution as a as a polis, as a Greek city state. And like that restructuring was kind of the bridge too far um, for this this other priestly family that we can now introduce. And this this is the Hasmoneans that Judah the Maccabee comes from. Um, So they were priestly, but never really in the running for like high priest, probably because they weren't as hard on the bootlicking. Yeah. And so they were like, "Okay, hang on a second. You want to make Jerusalem into Antiochia, you fucks like you're you're trying to build a gymnasium next to the Temple Mount. The fuck is wrong with you? Um, And so uh, this guy is really fucking weird to think about. Yeah. Right. (laughs) I can't. (laughs) So, yeah. Uh, (laughs) That's so weird. Yeah, like I can't stop thinking about that. <laughs> right, and so that's the thing. It's like the the some people know the story of oh the gymnasium, and they're like, what's wrong with you know people going to the gym and going to Greek schools? And it's like that's that wasn't the issue. It was that the city's constitution would be changed to make mm-hmm. it no longer the city of the Jewish people, but a Greek city state, and that. Like, I don't I haven't quite figured out all the details of what changes there, but like, it seems pretty obvious that that's like a big fucking deal. And, yeah. you know, like that's that that's it, it, I don't know. Yeah, that's a bridge too fucking far. Like it's like I said, the 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 Maccabee, you know, faction within this, like they had Greek names, too. They end up sending ambassadors to Rome like they're not above the kind of, you know, elite culture like snobbery of like, oh, yeah, we'll learn this like fancy pants language and we'll go to your schools and we'll study your philosophy and blah, blah, blah. But like change the constitution of our fucking city. Get the fuck out of here. Yeah. (laughs) Um, By way of example of kind of like the the mindset of these types, there was this writer named Ben Sira, who is actually the first named author of a Hebrew work. Um, And that's in itself a Hellenistic thing, like traditionally authors of, you know, Hebrew texts, whether they wound up in the Tanakh or not, either were written anonymously or were written under the pseudonym of like a famous ancestor. Um, So, you know, like, oh, Moses wrote this. Uh, The the like I wrote this, I am taking credit for it is in itself a Hellenistic innovation. But anyway, talking about this writer, they're saying a distinction might quote a distinction must be made between a Hellenizing form and a basically anti-foreign attitude. He, that is Ben Sira, was religiously conservative, faithful to the Torah, uh, somewhat nationalistic in output, but more than he himself was aware, was shaped by the spirit of the times, i.e. by Hellenistic ideas. Um, And so he was opposed to the Hellenistic reforms in the city, uh, but not to the kind of like intellectual and spiritual reforms. Right. So again, like this is a dude who just the fact that he put his own name on his book is already 
has already taken on board a sort of Hellenistic worldview as far as, you know, it's okay to take personal ownership of your your poetry or your creation. Right. Um, and the the way that he wrote was very Hellenistic and some of its ideas, the same way that the Alexandrian Jews were incorporating rhetoric into their prayers and and sermons and whatnot. But what it really come down to is like you you can't just change Jerusalem as a city. The structure of the city can't just be like given over as a Greek polis. Um, and this this kind of resistance to that was at the time called the Hasidim, uh, the the kind of the pious, the pietists. Mm. Um, and it was from this movement of like, hey, let's not go too far with this learning Greek and whatnot stuff that this guy Matathias Hashome of Modin comes along um, and uh, Hashome is where we get Hasmonean, and he was the father of Judah the Maccabee, and he was the one who led the revolt. Um, he was not very popular at the time it started. Apparently, to, to judge by the records we have, most people thought that because of the way the books of the prophets laid things out, that a uh, foreign rule of Judea was like divine punishment. And so they're like, well, uh, we have to wait for a miracle to save us. We can't just like start a revolt. That'd be crazy. Um, <laughs> and yeah. there were, there were no like scriptural examples to follow. Um, and so he was like, well, what if I just took the example of like a, a zealous warrior as my example and use that as like this scriptural basis to resist this, uh, this change to the constitution of, of Jerusalem. And so he explicitly drew on uh, Phineas, Joseph, Joshua, and David. And we're like, well, these, these were, you know, Jewish leaders who just kind of with just like zeal and force of will just kind of resisted and fought back. And he was like, I'm going to do that. That's how I'm going to justify it. Because like, it's important to note again, poking holes in the, Judaizing versus Hellenizing thing, the Jewish establishment was not open to throwing off the Greek yoke, right? They mm -hmm. like, they saw it as sacrilegious to be doing this. Um, and especially when the Mac, when the Hasmoneans started fighting on Shabbat, they were like, Whoa, fighting on Whoa. Shabbat. You can't, <laughs> you can't be doing that, man. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But, but, you know, Judah and his father and his brothers were like, yeah, but the Greeks have figured that out. That's why they keep fucking coming to kill us on Shabbat, you morons. Like, we, <laughs> we can't just let ourselves be killed for fuck's sake. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, so like there's this pietist movement that's kind of like, hey, we, we shouldn't be doing this. So 175 BCE is when this proposed restructuring of Jerusalem comes in. Um, by 170, you have Antiochus IV succeeds to the throne. You still have that guy Menelaus as the high priest. Uh, and there's a lot of resistance to Menelaus becoming high priest because he wasn't from a high priestly family. But the only other contender uh, is conveniently murdered. So he hmm. manages to succeed. Um Menelaus and his brother Lysimachus, like another Greek name, uh, they pay tribute and really just bribes 
to uh, Antiochus IV out of the temple treasury. Um, and they like kind of use that as the, the national bank. And so after a kind of disastrous war with the Ptolemies, Antiochus IV needs some cash. On his way back north, he plunders the temple. And from his perspective, he's like, well, you you two have been paying me out of this for like a while now. So I'm just going to take the rest of what's owed to me. Thank you very much. But the plunder of the temple is just like it, it sets off waves of protest. Uh, then I think Lysimachus, the brother of Menelaus, gets killed in those protests. It, it causes a whole wave of unrest across Judea. Um, this is in 169. The following year, Antiochus IV is rumored dead. And there's like more unrest. Like, oh, the emperor is dead. Then now's our time to strike. And at this point, uh, Antiochus comes back. He breaks down the walls around the city of Jerusalem and constructs a a separate kind of subset of the city called the Acre, which is now the what they call the city of David. And that's walled off and given the polis title. So you have Antiochia in Jerusalem. You have like a separate Greek city state inside Jerusalem, like a section of the city next to the temple. Um, and this is where the uh, kind of upper class Hellenizing faction, if you want to call them that, and Menelaus and those those folks, that's where they live. They live in the Greek city state, which has like Macedonian soldiers stationed there. And it's like overshadowing the temple. And it's so it's not a fucking great time. Um, mm -hmm. And then just showing, you know, another side of this at the same time, 167, the annual tribute is replaced by a proportional land tax. This is another one of Antiochus IV's reforms. And so rather than having like, oh, the the whole country pays a yearly tribute of a fixed amount, it's now a proportional percentage-based land tax on agricultural products. So guess who that hurts the most? All the peasant mm -hmm. farmers. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, Yeah. Then, in addition, Antiochus is sick of dealing with all the tension in the city and how hard it is for to govern these Judeans. And he decides that it's actually the Jewish religion itself that makes the Judeans a nation of rebels, which I kind of like that, a nation of rebels. Hell uh, yeah. <laughs> and so he forbids Jewish customs, festivals, circumcision, uh, obeying the Sabbath, following the Torah. Sacrifices are suspended in the temple and there is an altar put into the God of Heaven, which was one of the pseudonyms for Zeus. And Ew. then 10 days later, they start doing sacrifices to Zeus. Some sources say Dionysus. It's unclear who it was meant to be sacrificing for. But Antiochus IV was basically saying like, OK, you worship this heavenly God. You're going to worship our heavenly God now. Um, enough of your your weird particularities that make you a pain in the ass to govern as part of my empire. Um, and so starting in 166, you have passive resistance. So farmers would just like abandon their fields and leave them to go lie fallow. And like, fine, you want the fucking agricultural produce? Eat shit. We're going to disappear into the hills. Um, oh, yeah. And then they're hunted down and murdered. That's not cool. No. <laughs> And specifically, they were hunted down and murdered on Shabbat. 
So no. this the the Maccabees were not very popular at first, in large part because they were willing to active a actively resist a foreign overlord that all the kind of like religious bigwigs were like, no, that's God's punishment. And B, they uh, were willing to fight and defend themselves on Shabbat. But all this other passive resistance method stuff was being taken out because the the Macedonian, you know, Seleucid armies would just like hunt them down on Shabbat when they knew they weren't going to be defending themselves and would just slaughter them. Um, and so this is when the the Maccabean revolt begins. This is around 166, 165. They start this guerrilla war. Uh Mattathias is like 70 something years old. He dies after a year and Judah takes up the cause. At the same time, Antiochus IV gets wrapped up in campaigns out east against the Parthians. Um, so his he's like, you know, doing emperor stuff, bouncing between one fight and another. Um, and uh, Judah, Judah, the Maccabee or Judas Maccabeus, as he's found in a lot of the sources, is basically fighting against his regent, this guy named Lysias. Uh, Lysias quickly gets tired of this and tries to make a peace deal, and the terms are basically, okay, Menelaus remains high priest, all the Maccabean uh, revolters, like all the all your guerrilla warriors, they get amnesty. We're going to decriminalize the law of Moses, so not reinstate it as the law of the land, but decriminalize it. So there's still going to be pagan sacrifices, and or not pagan, I hate that word. There's still going to be like, uh, sacrifices to Greco Macedonian gods, but you can do your thing too. And importantly, there would be a return to the, the fixed yearly tribute and not the land tax. Um, now those negotiations don't go through Judah. There's these two other guys. Judah's never mentioned in any of these like official documents. Um, he's like, you know, off in the Hills doing guerrilla stuff uh but nice but they they go along with it as a way to kind of buy time like okay we can accept these terms for now um so they accept the 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 um the judean you know rebels accept the terms um meanwhile judah starts raiding the neighboring areas um so idumea and jericho and amon because in the surrounding areas around judea we get one of the early examples of our our old friend the jews in our midst are a fifth column and will betray us so uh. <laughs> yeah <laughs> so the other other neighboring regions of the seleucid empire were starting to look very suspiciously at their jewish populations after uh, as this revolt was breaking out um and so judah was like yeah 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 we'll stop revolting and instead turns his guerrilla band towards uh, punitive raids against people threatening their Jewish populations in the neighboring provinces. Um, a lot of them get kind of like rescued and brought to Judea. A lot of times the, the Maccabees don't get there in time and it just winds up being like a revenge spree. Um, it's, mm -hmm. it's all pretty fucking ugly to be honest. Yeah. Um, but importantly, in one of those Eastern campaigns, Antiochus IV dies. So Antiochus IV dies in Persia. And this is the time that Judah goes, okay, now's our chance. We're going to rededicate that fucking temple. And so it's in this power vacuum that the Maccabees retake Jerusalem. They 
they uh, dedicate, they like fortify the Temple Mount itself. And this is the rededication ceremony that winds up becoming the basis for Hanukkah. Mm. Now, you may have noticed I didn't mention a fucking thing about retaking the whole city. I didn't mention a fucking thing about throwing off Greek rule. I didn't mention a fucking thing about like purging the land of the Greeks because none of that happened. <laughs> like I hadn't even known any of this. <laughs> yeah. Like this is the thing that blew my mind. The rededication is nowhere near the end of the revolt. Like not even fucking close. It's it's in like 164, 163. The independence of the like, yeah, Maccabean independence is declared in 142. So like there's another 20 fucking years after the Hanukkah rededication. Like that's fucking crazy. But this has so little to do with the Maccabean revolt, really. Um, Yeah, it's it's so tangential to the larger story. It's wild. Um so, yeah, so they de- they rededicate the, the temple and this is the basis for the, the holiday itself. Um, what you end up having is you have. So in trying to kind of play to the needs and wishes of the like religious establishment, there's all these waiting around for miracles. So according to. Uh, the book of Daniel, there were miracles predicted for the sabbatical year in 164, starting in the month of Tishri. And in Zechariah, they predicted miracles during Sukkot. But because of like weird calendar confusion with the Seleucids, no one was sure what month it was. <laughs> so <laughs> so this is like the official story is they waited for the months to align, like played it safe and like, OK, so we'll have uh, Sukkot possibly in the wrong month. It's fine in Kislev, which is when Hanukkah is. My mm-hmm. pet theory is that the calendar reason is bullshit. And actually, they waited to get news of Antiochus the fourth's death because uh. it's like the, the date of like what month this all happened in this year is very, very confused. And I find it much more likely that the the Maccabees would retake the temple and rededicate it immediately upon learning of the emperor's death rather than just while he's off campaigning in the east. And this like mm-hmm. futzing around with the calendar is a way to kind of retcon some justification in there. Um, but anyway, it happens in the month of, of Kislev, which winds up being, uh, I think, December of 164 and they base it off of the dedication of the temple uh, of Solomon and of the dedication of altars by Moses and Hezekiah. So Solomon had extended uh, Sukkot to dedicate the the first temple according to the Torah um, or according to the Tanakh rather. And Mm -hmm. then the other dedications by Moses and Hezekiah had lasted for eight days. So what they did was, okay, we're having this fake Sukkot in Kislev, the Tabernacles of Kislev. Mm -hmm. We'll slap on two days of preparation and then another eight day dedication festival. And so you have this 18 day total thing that happens in that month. You have um, eight days of this bogus Sukkot two days of prep time and eight days of dedication. And those eight days of dedication are Hanukkah. That's it. That that's Hanukkah. 
those eight days, eight days of the rededication of the temple in the middle of this war that is nowhere near over by this guy, Judah the Maccabee, who controls one piece of Jerusalem and is literally just staring down this fortified uh, Greek polis, Antiochia in Jerusalem for the next 20 fucking years. God. That's the basis of this holiday. What the fuck? <laughs> yeah. And like, I'm obviously not going to go into all the details of what happens next, because this is something that I want to cover um, much more nitty gritty when it comes to the Odwinker Amundi series on um, on like uh, ancient Judea and Palestine. Uh, mm -hmm. But Oh, one thing I guess worth mentioning is that it seems that the rebellion was also not not very unified. Um, so, like I mentioned, that the the two the two ambassadors who who like negotiated with Lysias, the the kind of subordinate of the emperor, they were not necessarily followers of Judah and the Maccabees. Um, or the Hasmoneans, rather, they, mm -hmm. uh, according to this essay on it, um, at least most likely represented a group of rebels who thought that they, they didn't want to actually overthrow Greek rule. They still saw the uh, the like proper prophetically uh, predicted role of Judah to be ruled by foreign kings until the messianic end you know um yeah so like there was a that's the thing there was because a lot of a lot of this a lot of the like the the pietist movement the hasidim and the folks who were involved in this they <clears throat> they saw persian rule as justified because it's mentioned in the in the tanakh and they mm -hmm. saw the greeks as the legitimate inheritors of foreign of the persian domination of judea and said like, oh, we're still paying for our sins, blah, blah, blah. Uh, we have to wait for, you know, God to save us. Um, and the Maccabees were kind of like, nah, fuck this. <laughs> let's let's just fucking fight for our goddamn freedom, maybe. Mm -hmm. um, and so there was a wing even in the rebellion that like only kind of came around once Judah and the Maccabees were winning these like spectacular against all odds guerrilla engagements. And they're like, huh. I guess God's on their side. Yeah, let's join up. And and they then, of course, back out when they're like, yeah, well, we've we've got enough to win some concessions. So we're not going to, oh. you know, we don't really think that it's the right time for us to be independent. Um, oh. <laughs> oh. I know it's yeah. like the more you learn, it's just it, like it's just like a deflating balloon. This this story is like, oh, God, everything's just so sad and fucking God damn it. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> and yeah, like these concessions that they got in that little deal, um, they were things that the Hasmoneans were already enforcing. So like it like Hasmonean controlled territory. Someone joked on Twitter that they the Hasmoneans were basically doing a proto uh protected people's war but like they, they kind of were like they had their base area in modine they mm -hmm. they controlled like swaths they you know gained control of swaths of territory they built up dual institutions you know and so that's the thing like these concessions of like oh we're going to decriminalize the the law of the torah and we're going to let you do this and that they were already doing that in all of the areas they controlled 
Um, and so it says here, quote, the Hasmoneans must have viewed the concessions in the king's letter as an ultimatum to lay down their arms in return for nothing beyond what they had already won. Indeed, mm. the concessions were issued in the name of the little co-regent and could not have been and could have been overruled by Antiochus the fourth at any time because the official emperor was like this little kid or some shit. Um, and small wonder the Hasmonean party ignored so humiliating and in- insecure a charter. Like they didn't lay down their arms. <laughs> like I said, yeah. they just they just turned around and were like, all right, well, we won't fight you. We'll fight these other assholes that are telling us that all the Jews are fifth columnists in their territory. Um, like we're, we're technically sort of following this to buy time. Um, but it says here, like other pious Jews, however, held a different view in their eyes. Antiochus, the fourth's persecutions could only have been a visitation sent by God. Uh, if now they were to be ended, even temporarily, the, that fact was an act of God's mercy and should be welcomed. So like a lot of the rebels just kind of stopped. And after this point, Judah never really Judah the Maccabee or his brothers really never really got the same number of people to be involved, um, mm-hmm. which is why later Hasmoneans wind up sending letters to Rome for support because they don't have they, they kind of lose a lot of the mass support because so many of the masses are still wrapped up in this very sort of like superstitious um oh like god will provide type nonsense um and you know rather than seeing like well yeah no like sure god's providing you with that spear let's fucking go uh (laughs) (laughs) which is really fucking frustrating um so when did they use these events to celebrate hanukkah when did that come into play i'm not totally sure Um, I'm, I'm not exactly sure when, um, it seems pretty clear that it was at some point during the Hasmonean dynasty during like the, the kingdom that came out Mm -hmm. of all this, but that kingdom didn't exist, like I said, for another like 20 years. So it's, it's hard, it's hard to say, um, the, the first like written attestation of Hanukkah is in the Mishnah. Or no, sorry, from the Megillat Tanit from the Talmud, um, which was written in the first century CE. So we have like, at, at least at that point, Hanukkah under the name Hanukkah was being celebrated. Um, okay. I'm not sure exactly if it was practiced before, but like the name Hanukkah doesn't appear anywhere in in the well, I guess. It, there were eight days of dedication, which is what Hanukkah means, but it wasn't written out as a separate festival in the in the books of the Maccabees. It's referred to as the Sukkot of Kislev. So Sukkot in the month of Kislev. Oh, one quick thing just about like the sources for all of this. Something I found interesting. The the authors of each of the two book of Maccabees were ideological opponents um huh. so they yeah which actually makes it really it's really helpful because you can kind of check each book against each other um mm-hmm. because the the author of first maccabees was a like very pro hasmonean like you know court writer who was like just kind of placating all of the kings the author of so the the second book of maccabees is an abridgment of an earlier text by this guy jason of Cyrene. Um, who was a, a Greek speaking Jewish guy who really only liked Judah and thought the rest of the Hasmoneans were a bunch of fucking assholes. Um, <laughs> and so the, the books are actually like, as far as, you know, ancient sources go, the fact that they're ideologically at loggerheads is actually really helpful because they 
you know, you can yeah. use them relatively reliably. Um, so that's that's nice. But also, like, Jason of Cyrene insists that the, the hero Judah never violated the Sabbath. Oh, no, not him. It was the other Maccabees. <laughs> so, like, there's there's stupid shit like that in there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Who came up with the idea of the oil lasted for eight nights? Oh, I'll get to that. Okay. I'll get to that. Because I, I, I know a little bit of where that comes in. Because, yeah, there's okay. there's no mention of the menorah. There's no, like, th- that's not, like, a focus of, of the story here. Um Okay, so then I guess like briefly what happens next um, in in 163, so the the following year uh, after Antiochus's death, you have um, Antiochus the fifth is like a little little tiny baby, and so there's a, a governor place as a regent in place, and they try to kind of just make peace. They're too busy dealing with the Persians to worry about the Jews. Mm-hmm. And so they they re-recognize the Judeans as an ethnos rather than as like a, a so, you know, as a, a people of the empire with certain rights. The temple is restored to that ethnos. Um, the the Hellenistic reform of the of the city was revoked um, and the Torah was declared to be the law of the land. So like 163, they kind of reverse all of that. They still don't give back that fortified hill in Jerusalem, but is no longer uh, a separate uh, polis, a separate city unto itself. Mm-hmm. Um, the Hasmoneans, of course, never recognize their, their baby king. They're like, uh, no, we're ruling ourselves now. Thank you. Um, <laughs> but they can't convince everybody else to go along with it because, again, there's this kind of like superstitious just like, oh, well, we we won what we can. The rest of it's up to God. Um, which it's so self defeating. I know it's so fucking frustrating. <laughs> it's so fucking. Uh, um, yeah, they they like they try to convince people that this baby king is not king by the will of God, and it's like they try to work within. The, I mean, everybody at this time is very religious, right? So like, there there is no like secular movement, which is the other okay. thing that like I've heard people talk about, like, oh well. If this struggle was happening today, we would be the Hellenizers because we like Hellenistic stuff. And that comes from this dumb idea that, like, the ancient Greeks were somehow secular and they weren't. They were fucking really not. They just had a very different religion. But they still were very pious and religious and had. Yeah. Yeah. It's harumph. Um, But anyway. (laughs) Oh, another thing, um, at some point in the next year or two, Menelaus is executed um, and they put in another uh, high priest guy um, who is still from the kind of like pro Seleucid camp of things, but not not like the hated Menelaus who had gone along with Antiochus the fourth and like paid bribes out of the fucking temple treasury and shit. Um so there's there's that. Judas Judas Maccabeus keeps trying to like take over all of Jerusalem and doesn't really happen. It's very confused as to whether they lose control of the temple itself. It's very kind of complicated to keep straight. OK, so, yeah, so the. The, the long and the short of it is the, the guerrilla war continues. Um, there's the new baby king and then he, he gets ousted and this guy Demetrius gets put in place. And 
the guerrilla war led by the Maccabees continues. Um, and at this point, they send an embassy to Rome. I'm not exactly sure why the the dividing line switches from Ptolemies versus Seleucids to Rome versus Seleucids. I mean, Rome's getting bigger um, and the Judean Hasmonean kingdom is is kind of looked at as a great example of a kingdom that, while nominally independent, only had its independence because it had the diplomatic backing of Rome. Um, so they reach out to Rome. They get they get listed as friends of Rome. But at the same time, the Roman embassy legitimized Seleucid rule over Judea. Um, so it didn't say like, you know, Demetrius, you need to stop ruling. You're no longer king. Just said, you don't oppress the Jews or we will fuck with your shit, which, you know, Demetrius is going to go oh, kind of scared of Rome. Not going to fuck with that. Um, but there's more rebellions and there's like cycles of revolts. Judah gets killed uh, in a revolt in 161. His brother Jonathan takes over. Oh, one thing I thought was interesting. Yeah, so so after after Judah dies in this this uprising against Demetrius, um, his brother Jonathan takes over and kind of leads the the rebels off into the hills where he forms an alliance with the Nabataean Arabs, another group that mm. had previously been independent and had been conquered by the Ptolemies and Seleucids. And so you have this like joint Jewish Arab guerrilla army just off in the hills yes. of southern Judea. It's fucking tight. Yes. <laughs> um, and they they like win some pretty spectacular victories against the the general that the Seleucids send in. Um, oh, yeah. They also fight against other clans of Arabs. There's like the, the Jam, Jambrides, Jambrides Arabs. But the Nabataeans were the ones who had their capital at Petra, um, at those like awesome uh, cliff, the, the, the cliff palace thing, the rock cut temple mm -hmm. of Petra. Oh, yeah. um, and so, yeah, like the Nabataean Arabs and the Maccabeans, who again had way back those ties to a military outpost in the on the eastern side of the Jordan. So like there's there's some old ties there. They form this like joint guerrilla band, which is just fucking cool as hell. They don't uh, talk about that in Temple. No, they definitely do not. They do not talk about the <laughs> fact that the way the Maccabeans bounced back after being defeated uh, militarily and having their leader, Judah the Maccabee, killed is through collaboration and alliance with an Arab rebel band, um, which fuck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Dope as fuck. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. Then like later on in 145, Oh, here's what happens. Ptolemy the sixth conquers the Seleucids, but generously gives the crown to Demetrius the second. That's why the power dynamic shift. So the Seleucids are now kind of like vassals of the Ptolemies, which is why the Maccabean, uh, the Hasmoneans rather, uh, start looking to Rome for aid because now that's the conflict that's shaping up as like the two superpowers within the Mediterranean. Uh, that fortified city inside of Jerusalem, still not taken, still has a bunch of the collaborators just kind of chilling in there under protection from the uh, Greco-Macedonian military. So that's that's nice. Um, but Judea is given control of Samaria um, and there's more embassies to Rome. There's more cycles of backbiting and craziness. And finally, in 142, Simon, another one of the the uh, Hasmonean brothers, 
is just declared high priest by the Jewish people. There's hmm. no there's no like royal decree. There's no official power structure. He is just declared by the will of the people, which is fucking cool. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so he is the first ruler of the independent uh, Hasmonean state. There are coins issued in 142 BCE as year one of Simon, high priest and commander of the Jewish people. Um, and he renews relationships with Rome, which uh, forces the Seleucid king to recognize him. So he gets like given the official blessing of being high priest after the fact because he has the will of the people behind him and he has diplomatic support from Rome. And only now, 20, 20 plus years on at this point, this is 141, finally under Simon, the, the Acre that separated out fortified hill in Jerusalem gets retaken and becomes like part of the Temple Mount um, and it becomes the residence of the Hasmonean kings. 20, 20 something years later. <laughs> Yikes. So yeah, the, the original Hanukkah thing was 20 something years ago before the Hasmonean kingdom exists in any way, shape or form. And it is still technically not its own kingdom. <clears throat> that doesn't even happen until uh, 104. So the first actual king is in 104. Up until then, it's just high priests who are ruling with the like very nominal blessing of the Seleucid kings. So like this independence thing is also kind of a, a load of horseshit. It was never independent, um, like functionally. There mm -hmm. was nominal independence, but they even stopped minting coins in like the year of the high priest after the 10th year of Simon's rule. They went back to the Seleucid calendar. So even with this kind of local autonomy, they didn't have independence. The most they ever got was local autonomy. Um, and so you have Simon and then John Hyrcanus takes over as high priest after him. John Hyrcanus's son, Judas Aristobulus I, is the first nice. Hasmonean king. But, I like that name. But again, that's a <laughs> but that's a Greek name. Yeah. Right? It's it's interesting. It's like it's a it's a Greek version of uh, Hebrew names. There's a lot of mm -hmm. those in the Hasmoneans, but it's still in Greek. So, like, again, the culture war angle horseshit. Um, the Hasmoneans were just as involved in the kind of Hellenized cultural practices as anybody else when it came to language and politics and, you know, education and whatever else. They were a priestly family. They were elites. They just weren't willing to give up, you know, what, whatever autonomy they could cling to. They wanted, you know, like that's mm -hmm. that's the real thing that I think is the takeaway, because there was never an independent state. Simon only got the high priesthood with the backing of Rome and he damn well knew it, you know, mm -hmm. and and same with anybody else. And so then, you know, this kind of brings us to where I started the historical backdrop for Tisha B'Av, because after Judas Aristobulus comes along, it's his brother, Alexander Janaeus, and uh, his wife, Queen Alexandra Salome, was the one who we started with, I think, on, on oh, that. And so it's her yeah. kids. It was the rivalry between her two sons that eventually winds up with, uh, you know, 
Judea becoming part of the Roman Empire and then the sacking of the temple eventually and the sects and all that stuff. So, yeah, like it's it 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 was never independent. Judea mm-hmm. went from being a Persian satrapy to being a Ptolemaic province to being a Seleucid province to being a more autonomous or less autonomous Seleucid province to being a client kingdom of Rome. It was never its own thing. (laughs) Um, And so I think like the sort of it, it, it's a it's such a mess. It's hard to really draw meaningful lessons from it, except that I think like, you know, in in the age of capitalist imperialism, you know, as anti-imperialists, we understand that carving out autonomy is super fucking important, Mm -hmm. you know, and like even if they weren't you know, achieving full independence, even if they were still like I I read someone or heard someone saying like, oh, the Maccabees weren't even that great. They sold out. They sold out the Jews to Rome. And it's like, no, that's fucking stupid. That's a fucking stupid argument. Like, yeah, there, there was no other options there. You know, like you Judea was this tiny, tiny fucking little pissant of a place in the eastern mediterranean <laughs> like mm-hmm. they're not going to be able to stand up to egypt or the seleucids or rome especially once rome really got going so you know playing rome off against the seleucids was the wisest political course of action it was what secured their you know their autonomy within the seleucids and sure it didn't go well eventually but like mm-hmm. i feel like it's really silly to hold them responsible for that yeah i learned a lot my brain is like i haven't even gone into everything like there's so many fucking moving pieces here but i think like the big takeaways historically is like the the things that really stuck out to me that i want to make sure that on this like weird little roller coaster you know everyone takes away from it all is a there was no culture war the spark that really set off the revolt was an administrative mm-hmm. and tax restructuring so it was very like material concerns much more than like class of civilizations yeah. hellenism versus judaism that fucking bullshit um because there you know yeah there was both hellenization and strong proud judaism on both sides of the war um so that that's clearly not the central issue the central issue is about you know the the distribution and taxation of land and the products of that land and about the uh, mm-hmm. the like power structure administrative relations between the city of Jerusalem and the empire in which it sat. And the motivation of the Hasmoneans was to do whatever they had to, to maintain as much autonomy for uh, Jerusalem as the proxy for like the entire uh, province of Judea as they possibly could. And I think that's admirable at the end of the day, like, that's that's a fucking cool thing that should be celebrated. Um, yeah. Like and, you know, the other thing, just the rededication of the temple was only pulled off because the emperor had just died and it was not actually the mark of victory, which I still 
I'm even though I like read this through, I'm still confused by it because in my brain, I have 30 years of thinking that was the end of the war. And it was mm-hmm. just this random event in the middle of it. They didn't even retake Jerusalem. They just they just rededicated. They didn't hold on to Jerusalem militarily. They just rededicated the temple and dared the emperor to go put the like statue of Zeus back in there or whatever. Mm-hmm. It was it was relatively minor. Um, and then obviously, you know, the, the awesomeness of having the, the like bouncing back from defeat be due to collaboration between Jewish and Arab yeah. guerrilla armies. That's, that's something that, uh, I, I would love to highlight going forward. Hell uh, yeah. <laughs> and then just finally that like, yeah, even at its, its greatest success, independence was never on the menu. And so mm-hmm. the the focus on an independent nation of the Jews is so just just such transparent Zionist propaganda because that was never that's not what happened. It's not even it close to what happened. Is. Yeah, always Zionist propaganda. Right, like <laughs> the, it was not this like we want to like we're going to have a national like political entity at all cost like ah no like they were very rise of that imagery of like the maccabees like taking (sighs) back taking taking their independence i think the rise of that really began with this the declaration of israel as a state i i would imagine it's probably before the declaration but certainly during the zionists movement you know like i i haven't done the research to say and this will be something maybe we can touch on next year's hanukkah episode but like i would bet it was like in the 20s that this really got rolling as like the jewish freedom fighter story you know yeah i think it was in diaspora boy oh yeah uh where ellie valley like has postcards and stuff showcasing uh how strong uh, Israelis were yeah, compared right. and like showing Israelis <laughs> as the Maccabees and there were like postcards from like I think the 20s and 30s yeah, that, that would make sense nice yeah because that's because I know like in the well it was during World War One that the Brits kind of came on board to the Zionist project and mm-hmm. so I'm sure it was like in the wake of that success that political Zionism really ramped up um, and started doing the like, yeah, the like, I mean, the the new Jew bullshit, like Judah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you have a guy named Judah the Hammer in your backlog. You're going to use that as as a national symbol because like the dude's name is Judah the fucking Hammer. <laughs> like, is that where Hebrew Hammer comes from? It is. Yeah. Maccabee. <laughs> Mac, Maccabee translates as Hammer. Um, so but so have that's you that. Seen the oh, Hebrew? yeah. I've seen the Hebrew Hammer. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> But that's that's one other thing that I I haven't really dug through all the details to work this out. But I have like a minor conspiracy theory that Judah the Maccabee didn't exist. Hmm. He's not recorded in any of the official dialogues with the Seleucids, with Rome, with anybody. All the ambassadors are under other names. And I'm just kind of always suspicious of a character named the name of a country um yeah you know like 
obviously Judah was a relatively like we, we have historical records of people named Judah. There were people like that. But whenever a Judah plays a large, prominent role, it's like, you know, it's not a fucking accident that the traitor among the 12 apostles was named Judah. You know, mm-hmm. like the Christians named their bad guy figure Jew. Right. <laughs> like, yeah, that's pretty nakedly. Uh, a propaganda hit like well you know. judah is also the male version of judith oh shit yeah you're right i didn't even put that together fucking a. yeah so there's a connection i don't know <laughs> but yeah like that's the you, thing you know judah the maccabee there were several other hasmonean brothers he never was involved in the official diplomacy by name he like the the records about him are pretty scant and the the actual i mean shit the actual kingdom doesn't get set up until it's like brother number three in charge simon so Hmm. it's i i have just an idea that he was like a folk hero put in you know after the fact um just like and given the name because that was also a very common Hellenistic thing was to have a heroic story of somebody whose name gave the name to a city or a territory. Um, Mm -hmm. I can't think of any right now, but like you have all these like historical backstories of so-and-so whose name becomes the name of X city. And it just seems like, Hmm, I wonder if this dude, the Hebrew hammer really existed. Um, (laughs) But either way, like it's, it's a fucking cool story. I, I yeah. you know, I've there's there's a I've seen this happen where there's a tendency of Jews on the left to distance themselves from Hanukkah because it's been so thoroughly used and abused by Zionists and like embrace it. Yeah, like I, I hope that diving into the like wacky nitty gritty of the the history behind it gives us an ability to say like, no, you know what? The the Hasmoneans were fucking correct like they did they did what they had to do to maintain a sense of cultural and and political and economic autonomy and i again i can't stress enough that like the the peasants were being massively exploited in a way that they had not been before under the like the seleucids were much harsher rulers than the ptolemies the ptolemies like were pretty pretty all right for Judeans like it wasn't really that bad like the Ptolemies raised up the productive forces of the society the Seleucids came in and just taxed the hell out of everybody and just like oppressed people and there were a bunch of fucking compradors who went along with it and so the Maccabees declared war on the compradors and the imperial structure that was oppressing them they won back their concessions and then they did some like savvy political negotiation to to keep their autonomy they had gained because they knew that they couldn't actually win militarily. What the fuck is wrong with that? <laughs> Nothing. Yeah. They're like, <laughs> their line was correct, you know? Yeah. And later Hasmoneans, not so much. There, there's only really ugly stuff later on where there's like the forced conversion of the Idumeans, the former Edomites, where they're like, yeah. you know, it, it's one of the darker, uglier so chapters. Good. Yeah. And this is where like the, I, I definitely side with the author of Maccabees two, where he's like, you know, Judah was cool. The other guys kind of assholes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but like shit, you know, 
it is what it is. How, they mm-hmm. did the best they could in the ancient world. Um, all right, so that's that. Now let's get to the menorah. Um, <laughs> I thought we were wrapping up. <laughs> this, like, is, this is going to be like now a... Let's get to the menorah. <laughs> well, this is going to be like a, a quicker coda because this is... I don't have as much detail on this at all. Um <laughs> <laughs> I feel bad. I was just like, here's I like have given that spiel about Judith a lot, and I was like, bam, 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 bam. No, no, this is I, I, I knew what I was getting myself into. Um, okay. Yeah, as far as the menorah and the festival of lights, as far as I know, this is actually the only thing. That Hanukkah and Christmas have in common, which is that both holidays take this uh, light obsession from the Roman holiday celebrating the birth of Sol Invictus, the unconquerable sun, who happened to be born. Yeah, who happened to be born on December 25th. Totally coincidentally. That is such (laughs) a cool name. Oh, man, I know. I know. Victim. Yeah. I'm sure there's a metal band or anything. Oh, definitely. That. Definitely. <laughs> uh, but yeah, Dies Natalis Solis Invicti, the the feast day of the unconquerable sun. It's so yes. fucking cool. Uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, so yeah, so like the the festival of lights aspect of this, because as we've established, like has jack shit to do with the actual story of the history. The Festival of Lights comes in from the Romans, which makes a lot of sense because you don't really have Festival of Light type celebrations in, you know, a Middle Eastern desert type area. You do have them, however, in a European context, right? Because like it gets fucking dark. It's a bummer. You have light focused solstice holidays. Um, And so it was in the Roman context that. Uh, this holiday became associated with that because it just happened to fall around that time of year, right? Like you had the the Roman Jewish diaspora, which again, like existed prior to the destruction of the temple. There, there was Jewish diaspora since the Persian period. You know, once Rome took over Egypt, they had all the Jews of Alexandria that were suddenly Roman. Um, and so the, yeah, there was the older holiday of Saturnalia, which um, a lot some people might be more familiar with, a celebration of Saturn. Then got kind of folded into this celebration of this sun god, um, the the unconquerable sun, Sol Invictus, uh, who I I think it was uh, brought in by Aurelian. Yeah, Aurelian, um, the emperor of Rome in. 274. Here we go. So yeah, according to the Wikipedia article, uh, on 25th December, 274 CE, the Roman Emperor Aurelian made it an official cult of Sol Invictus alongside all the other ones. And it was kind of this fusion of the Latin sun god with this god Elagabalus, who was a uh, kind of like came from like, I think, modern day Lebanon or Syria or something. Um, But there was this fusion of you know, Eastern and Western sun gods into this like super duper ultimate sun god that happened to be born on December 25th. Total coincidence. And mm-hmm. was celebrated with <laughs> celebrated with lots of focus on light and the rays of light shining from his crown and this and that. And so, you know, the as as has happened in 
you know, in the US where Hanukkah has been given this like place of prominence because it's next to Christmas back in Roman times, as far as I understand, what happened was like, OK, the Romans are having this crazy festival. Uh, we don't want to exclude everybody like it, it's kind of lame to just not party with everyone. So we need to find a Jewish justification for it. Hey, when they dedicated the temple on Hanukkah, they must have relit the menorah. Right. And that's kind of the genesis of the uh, the story of the miracle of the oil and the miracle of light. Uh. So that's that's that. And that's also, you know, obviously where like the Christmas lights come from, too. You know, like it's it's this solstice thing that then Northern European Christians really went fucking crazy with because it gets super yes. dark. So you want to light things up super hard. And so you get the fusion of Yule with the Sol Invictus mm -hmm. shit as well. So, yeah, everybody gets a light because it's dark out and dark is sad. So long live it's, the yeah, unconquered sun. It's as fuck. <laughs> yeah. You know. So uh, I guess, there is a yeah. neo-folk band called Soul Invictus. Of course there is. Of course there fucking is. <laughs> and I'm and because it's a neo-folk band, I'm sure they're fucking fascists, unfortunately. But, uh, but hey, you know. <laughs> what are you gonna do? Yeah, right? <laughs> unfortunately, you you can't be a metal kid and into like classical history without like coming up against just zillions of fascist idiots who think that the Romans were white which is hilarious. They were a part of the British National Front. Oh, God. God. No. God damn it. That's such a good name, too. I know. I know. <laughs> Sorry, that got, that went off track. No, that's fine. Tim Tim's not here to stop us from being, like... Metal, metal kids, a little bit too obsessed with, you know, heathen religions for your average Jew. So might as well flex on it while he's not here. Uh, <laughs> we love you, Tim. Love you, buddy. But yeah, so that's Hanukkah. Uh, the, the festival of a minor sort of cultural victory and also a Roman holiday and also badass Jews, whether with hammers or swords, fucking up yeah. people trying to fuck with them. So yeah. <laughs> light that I, menorah up. I love Judith. And I like, during Hanukkah, I always try to read like Marxist lady writers oh, nice. like Rosa Luxemburg and. I, I do reread the Judith story. Like, yeah, definitely. If you haven't worked it in, I'm going to, huh? I'm going to read Judith tomorrow. I think because I haven't, I, I have been, you were the one that actually told me about the Judith part of Hanukkah. So I, I have yet to work it in, but I'm going to, I'm going to read that shit tomorrow. Yeah. Judith revolutionary icon, Judah, the Maccabee revolutionary icon. Uh, For both of them. Yeah. <laughs> don't don't let the Zionists ruin your fucking holidays. Hanukkah is about resisting a land tax and imperial control of your city. So, yeah. you know, th those things are always to be resisted. Guerrilla warfare, man. <laughs> Hell yes. Yeah. Long, long live the unity of Jewish Arab guerrilla warfare. Yeah. Or That's want to bring that shit back. Some using your <laughs> talents and. Getting men where. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Yeah. No, definitely. Some like 
you know, long also, yeah, props to using your uh, personal diplomacy to to just lure shitty dudes to their deaths. Yeah. Along with female friendships. <laughs> They're the best. Hell yeah. All right. So I think that's it for today. Um, I think so. Yeah. Hanukkah in the bag. It is now the the third night. Um, so the we'll, sun is starting to set here. Yep. It's it's gone down here. So we'll, we'll uh, go and light your menorahs, everybody. And hope you have a good rest of Hanukkah for those that celebrate Christmas. Merry Christmas. For everyone else, you know, we'll wish you a happy holiday when your holiday comes up, because happy holidays is fucking stupid. Um, yeah. <laughs> Fuck Christian hegemony forever. Death That's to Santa. Right. Long, right. Long live I, the war on Christmas. Oh, fuck Santa so much. Just fuck him. Yep. <laughs> I yep. have so much <laughs> anger towards him. <laughs> Critical support for Krampus. Um, yeah. Because he, he fucks with Christmas. So down down with that. Holster <laughs> the goat. Yep. Free the elves. Uh, yeah. So that's it. Um, we are, of course, Proles of the Minion. You can be in touch with us on Twitter at Proles Minion and on email at ProlesMinion at gmail.com and on our Patreon at patreon.com slash ProlesMinion. If you have any suggestions on what you would like to see from the Patreon, please email us. I've been thinking about maybe doing some Jewish art history type episodes. Ooh, that'd be cool. Um. My interests are very much so 1890 to 1930, uh, political cartoons and postcards and ephemeral art. So I could look into uh, what I talked about earlier about the postcards showing like the Maccabees and uh, IDF soldiers and um, the combination of those two and how it was used for propaganda. Um, I could do episodes like that if you really want to listen to me for an hour talk about art history stuff. So I do. So okay, <laughs> patrons, make that happen. Just uh, email us or tweet us and say yes, I like that. No, I don't. Yeah, and definitely any ideas because we do want to expand uh, our Patreon. Um, I know I'm I'm hoping to get some uh, some some merch going on really really soon. <laughs> that would be fun to incorporate into that. But yeah, so for now, thank you to our lovely patrons who have signed up just to kind of support the show and get a, a davening after dark episode. We have right now ten patrons. Of course, up atop the our, our central committee proles of the round table. Uh, boop, boop. Then also Pope Peanut the Ninth, Eli, Swedish Tanky, Steelfish, Tuhotsky for Trotsky, Grammar Antifa, Ewan, uh, Queer Antifa, and Michael. Thank you. Thank you so much for your we support. Love you. You uh, make it so much easier to do the things we do and to improve our show to make it even better. Um, and we, we hope that you uh, continue to enjoy it for a long, long time to come. So that's that. Uh, we will have some surprising and fun changes coming down yes. the pipeline soon. Uh, yes. <laughs> Can, uh, 
I'll keep it quiet. <laughs> well, we we had hoped that today would be the debut, but we'll you know you'll you'll just have to wait and see. I am going to Ireland, and I will be meeting up with folks from Colony uh, Youth Movement uh, in Northern Ireland, where we will be discussing the struggles of Ireland. Uh, along with the struggles of Palestine and how they're interconnected. Oh, yeah. Um, I think it's going to be a really, really powerful episode. And I've been watching a lot of documentaries. There isn't much written about the um, the similarities and the solidarity work that's been done between the two countries. But I've, I hope this episode will help bring some light to it. That's amazing. So, I'm really looking forward to that. I'm really excited. Yeah, I'm super psyched to listen to that. Um, yeah, obviously, long live the 32 free co- counties of Ireland. Ooh, ah, up the raw. Uh, you know, so yeah, that's going to be fun. And uh, more excitement coming your way in the future. But that's it for now. Happy Hanukkah. Happy Hanukkah. Chag Yeah, Chag Sameach and solidarity forever. Bye. Bye.